Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into our study. Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. Father, gracious are you to allow us this time to worship you. There is so much that happens inside of us, and so much that happens in the world when we worship. We are acknowledging, Father, that You are the supreme value of the universe. That You are preeminent. That You are the most prominent and at the highest peak of our allegiances. And at the same time, Father, we, we do this in the middle of Your creation. A beautiful creation, but at the same time a fallen creation. And what we do in worship, Father, is, is to write that, 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 that fallen direction, that, that fallen focus, and try to place it back on You, Father, by declaring You the greatness of Your glory. And as we go into this, uh, this, 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 this great text, Father, on, on Jesus calling His first disciples, it's so important, Father, for us to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask that You bless us with this in the name of Jesus. And so, Father, as we study, uh, help us to be discerning, to make the proper applications, and to be changed and to be transformed in our living. And we ask all of this, Father, in the name of Jesus and all the church said. We live in a culture, as you know, that as we get closer and closer to Easter, there is ramped up conversations about Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, is a very, very prevalent subject these days. But what is startling and what is a little, a little unsettling about these discussions is that there is a very low appreciation for the Incarnation, the fact that Jesus, as the Bible portrays Him, as God come into the flesh. Incarnation, a tremendously important piece of doctrine and understanding of Jesus. But what happens in our culture is that Jesus is deconstructed into the image of you and me. And, and what we find is that that kind of a Christ is never going to confront us. That Christ is never going to challenge us. And that Christ is never going to change us. Why? Because we have deconstructed Jesus. We have built Him into our own image, the image of you and me. If Christ is ever going to change us, He's going to have, his, have to have His own true reality that is revealed to us in Scripture. And that's one of the reasons why we have the Gospels. Now, this morning, we are going to hear His first words. In chapter 4, verse 17, it's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 19, He says, come and follow me. Then we drop down to verse 23. And we read in Matthew chapter 4 that as he is going through Galilee, he is preaching the good news of the what? The kingdom. Now the fact that Jesus is calling anyone is, is really extraordinary because during this period of time, nobody that was great or of a teaching capacity ever called anybody. The rabbi certainly never called anyone to come and follow them. In fact, the way it usually happened is if you were a great teacher, you were a great rabbi, some important individual the students would come to you and would ask you to be his disciple. So what Jesus is doing here is really unique. It's extremely unique, but not only that, what he's doing changed the world. And it all begins with a call. Now what we're going to do this morning is look at that call from two different angles. The first one is this. The call of Christ is different. The call of Christ is different. 
Okay, what was different about thy call? Well, there are two words that help us to understand how it was different. The first word is gospel. The second word is kingdom. Let's look at that first word, gospel, at, at, at the beginning. The, the word good news that we read in verse 23 and elsewhere, it is actually, if you read it in the original language, is one word. It is the word euangelion, or we would see it as two words. The beginning is kind of a prefix, eu, that we would pronounce as you. We see it in English language like uh, euthanasia or eulogy. It means good. The second word, angelion, means message. The word angel itself means messenger. The, 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 um, uh, the other form of the word where it becomes a noun is in, in, um, uh, in this sense means the message. And so it is, it is literally the good message. Now, this word had currency in the first century, but it did not have religious currency. Everyone was familiar with it. They knew what it meant. They knew that if somebody was talking about the gospel, the good news, they weren't talking about the daily news. What they were talking about was a good news that was life-shaping. The gospel is life-shaping news, the kind of good news that changes the history of the world. Now, many of you already know this uh, because of your study of, of uh, the Bible, but even in the ancient manuscripts, even the one that deals with the birth of Caesar Augustus, there is a document, a historical document, that says the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And inside of that document, it talks about his birth and it talks about his coronation. But the word was also used to declare great battles. You'll remember from your ancient history that when the, the, the Persians were defeated by the Greeks at Marathon and, and before that at the Sea Battle of the Salamis, the Greeks dispatched these, these messengers who went to deliver the gospel message of victory. And that message was, you are not going to be Persian slaves, but you are going to be free Greeks. The gospel was the news of something in history that was done for you that changes you forever. The gospel is historical fact. So why the big deal with this distinction? Well, this is huge because the essence of every other religion outside of Christianity, the essence of every other religion is that it's advice. If you will do these X number of things, you're going to be saved. If you accomplish these things, you're going to find some, some level of enlightenment. You develop these kinds of attitudes or these emotions or this outlook in life and you're going to be successful. And, you know, there might be some very good teaching and some very good truths to understand, but when you stand in front of that advice, don't you feel a little burdened? I mean, it might be instruction about something important, like integrity or, or something in the business world, and it might even involve some kind of an inspiring story. But you back away from that and you go, you know, I wonder if I can accomplish that. There's a burden to it. And, and, and part of the difference between advice and good news, the way that the gospel presents the message of Jesus, is this. Do you feel, before advice, how the Greeks felt when they heard that the Persians had been pushed back into the sea and they weren't going to be slaves and they weren't going to be dominated and they weren't going to be killed off, but they were going to be free? The gospel is that God accepts you on the basis of what another, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ has done for you on the cross. The gospel is truly good news. The second word is kingdom. 
And Jesus, as we read in Matthew chapter 4, begins preaching that the kingdom of God is near. Uh, Matthew's gospel is going to use the kingdom of heaven because he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience that would have been offended by his use of the word God. But kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God can be interchanged. But to understand what he's talking about and what they're hearing, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. What we read in those chapters, as you know, especially in those first two chapters, has to do with the creation of the world. And as we read in Genesis 1 and 2, as God is creating it with the Word, He says a word, and it all happens, it was a perfect world. Not only was it, was it perfect in the sense of being the exact thing that God had in His mind, but psychologically and socially and emotionally and physically and spiritually, it is this, per, this perfect world. Now why was it a perfect world? Well, at the, at, at the most core point, the reason it is a perfect world is because God is the king. God is the king of everything. But then Genesis 3 rolls into the picture and we read about the fall of humanity. And it begs the question, I mean, what, why in the world did we fall? Why did we fall? Well, things were perfect when God was king. It fell in chapter 3 when we decided to be our own kings. When we decided and chose to become self-centered rather than God-centered. When we became self-absorbed rather than God-entranced. And when our relationship with God unraveled, everything else unraveled with it. And our self-centeredness is the thing that killed our relationship with God because that's what self-centeredness does. It kills every kind of relationship. Any self-centered person that you know out in the, the community of San Antonio or wherever you might live, are those people always surrounded by, by great, loyal friends? Not hardly. Self-centeredness is always about the self and about nobody else. And sometimes it's about building up self to, to the, at the cost of draining all of those other selves. And think about self-absorption. It just makes you miserable. We obsess over how we're doing and how people are treating us and are we getting what we deserve and is, and is, is what's happening to me, is it, is it really just? Am I, am I living in the middle of a, this just environment where, where I'm treating the way that I think I need to be treated? When we decided to be king, when we decided that we were going to be the center, that's when everything fell apart. And Jesus is coming the first time is about saving us and calling us to follow Him and putting things back the way that they were supposed to be. But it's not an easy thing to do, is it? Which leads us to the second point, which is the call of Jesus is not just different, it's drastic. It's a drastic call. It's like no other call that you will ever experience or hear in this life. Jesus is going along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, are, they're fishing. That's what they do. They have a business. And he calls them, and in verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then Jesus goes a little bit further to another cove along the shore of the Sea of Galilee on his way to Capernaum. He sees James and John in this cove. They're the sons of Jebedee. They're preparing their nets or mending their nets. And that particular cove is there to this day where there's a hot spring that comes up in the middle of this, or uh, there by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're in this cove. And to this day, this is where the fishermen will mend their nets and wash them out. And as he's going along, he sees them and he calls out to them, follow me. Verse 22, and what's the word? Immediately. Say it together, church. Immediately 
They left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Now here's the thing. We know from reading the Gospels that they fished again. And we know from reading the Gospels and the New Testament that they didn't cut themselves off from their family. So, so what exactly is happening here as Matthew writes this? Well, the main point and the easiest way to say it is that Jesus is really calling for preeminence. In, in our culture, 21st century San Antonio, middle of Texas, southern part of the United States, western hemisphere, in our culture saying goodbye to mom and dad is no big deal. In fact, it's the expected thing. In fact, if you stay with your mom and dad until you're 89 years of age, that's considered an unhealthy thing. So leaving dad is no big deal. In their ancient culture, family was everything, though. In our culture, no big deal, but in their culture, it's everything. It's where you found your identity. It's found you, where you, you had your protection, your support, your emotional well-being. In our culture, Jesus is... Equal call is for him to have preeminence over our jobs and our career. And Jesus is saying that all of these things that are important to you, that you are connected to, either through a relationship or through some financial transaction, whatever it might be, if it's a part of your life, it has to be recalibrated in light of his call to follow him. Everything comes second after him. Now this, quite frankly, is incredibly distasteful to a lot of people living in San Antonio because you know what it sounds like? Fanaticism. It sounds like fanaticism, and lots of folks are afraid of fanaticism. They, they might know someone who, who says that they are a Christian, and at the same time they're, they're really judgmental and they're a little narrow-minded. They're pretty negative. They seem to be criticizing everybody and about everything. And they hear in the news about some fanatical Christian who, who perpetuates or, or perpetrates this act of violence against those that they disagree with. And unfortunately, some of that happens. And so what do most San Antonio uh, people, San Antonians, think of, that we should do about this? Well, some are going to say, you know what, religion is a little bit toxic. It's a dangerous thing. What we need to do is to get rid of religion. In fact, I've received not, not, not just one email saying that, that, that very thing from somebody in the community. That, that Christianity is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a toxic religion that just separates good people from good people. But on the other hand, some are going to see Christianity as a spectrum. And on the one end, you're going to have hypocrites, which no one respects and no one really wants, and on the other, hand, other uh, end, you're going to have fanatics, which everyone is going to fear. And so people are going to look at that and they're going to say, you know, can't we tone this Christianity thing down a little? Can't we find a middle ground? Why not moderation in all things? I mean, Christianity in its extreme form, it's a little stout. We need to cut it with some water. It's moderation in all things. And yet, in another place, in that big discipleship chapter out of Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself says basically the same thing. Later on in his ministry, he says, If anyone, anyone, comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, how moderate is that? You know, Jesus is not saying, I mean, there, there's no double standard here. Jesus is not saying to a crowd of people that, you know, 
I really only need just a few of you fellas to be, you know, SEAL Team 6 types when it comes to the faith, and the rest of you, just everything in moderation. What Jesus says is, if, if anyone comes and follows me, if anyone follows me, there's no double standard. So, so what does this all mean? Well, I think that Jesus is not calling for an active hate. Because in other places, He tells us to love our enemies. In the very next chapter, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. What He's doing here is not an active hate, but a comparative or a comparison type of hate. In other words, what Jesus is calling for us to do is to follow Him so comprehensively, so, so utterly profoundly, and, and with, without any other allegiance, and, and, and to, do it, you know, to, to do it in such a way that all of our other attachments in life look like hate in comparison. The problem with fanatics is not that they have followed Jesus too far, but they have not followed Him far enough. Modern-day fanatics might look bold when they try to clear temples or when they try to pronounce judgments. But they, but they have not followed Him far enough. When they, they may look bold when they try to clear these temples, but are, but are they fanatically humble? Are they fanatically meek? Are they fanatically gentle? Jesus is both the truth and the grace. He is both holy and forgiving. Jesus is both Lord and the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Fanatics look extreme because they have only gone to one side. They see the side of Jesus that is strong and they have rejected the other side. It's not that they're fanatic, it's that they're extreme. What Jesus calls to do is to follow Him in His true reality, who He really is, as exposed to us and revealed to us through the Holy Spirit and God's Word. They've only latched onto one end without getting the other end. But disciples emulate both. And this is how Jesus makes them fishers of men. They develop a life that, that knows how to draw men out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus has lived this life. Strength of holiness. The gentleness of grace. When John talks about him, he's not just a man who speaks truth, but he's one that speaks truth and grace. And people looked at that, and they looked at his life, and they saw who he was, and they heard his call, and they were ready to get out of that boat and follow him. You know, Jesus does the same thing this morning. You know, many of us have these boats that we're really comfortable with. We like them. They're kind of our box. And we like them. Comfortable. And then all of a sudden the call of Jesus comes and it's different because it's calling for complete allegiance and it's drastic because He's calling us to follow Him completely in everything that we do. You know, one of the things that helps us to make the decision to get out of that boat is when we see His life and know that He too left His Father to come to us. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, who needs to get out of the boat this morning? 
Some of you have been following Jesus all of your life, but you've never really gotten out of the boat in terms of following Him as your Lord and Master, where you have chosen to live that life as a disciple that He has called you to. And this morning, the call is for you to get out of that boat and to leave everything, to leave everything, and to make Him preeminent, to make Him the prominent one in your life, to make Him supreme in such a way that it makes all of the other attachments in your life look like, like hate in comparison. To follow Him that way. There are others who have been wondering for a long time, you know, what is this Jesus really about? What, is it, what, is it, what does He really mean to me? What Jesus means is that there, is, there has broken into the world a light in darkness, a truth in the middle of, of falseness. There is a, 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 a rightness that has come into a, a place of righteousness, a, a person of righteousness that has come into a world of fallenness. And what it means is that God is... God is calling His people back to Him and calling them back to Him in a way that they, they had relationship with Him back in the garden of being His children, of, of being close to Him. His Spirit, through baptism and the forgiveness of our sins and our sins being washed away, is put inside of us so that we are transformed and we become being strengthened in that inner person to become the kind of people that we were always intended to be. But none of that happens. None of that happens until you get out of the boat and you take a step towards Him. And that's what I'm calling you to do this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus in this way, get out of the boat and step onto the shore and follow Him. And the way that you do that is you confess Him to be your Lord. That's what He's calling you to do when He says, follow me. And you repent of your sins, which means that you've decided that, you know what, I can't take care of these. The burden of trying to become the person I want to be is too big in front of all of the advice and under the weight of all of the counsel of all of the other religions. What I need is good news, that somebody else has done it for me. And that's what he's done. And when you're baptized, you participate in his death and burial and resurrection, all of Romans chapter 6. And as he died to sin, you died to sin. And as he ended that, in, that, uh, that enslavement of sin for you by your death to those sins, you can now live your life fully and completely in, in allegiance to God. And that blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing, that, that, that feeling of knowing that the creator of the universe knows your name, knows who you are, is taking care of you, and is, it is going to deliver you into his heaven at the end of time forever and ever can happen for you today. If that describes you, then come down and talk to our shepherds as we stand and sing together.